Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. And with for this week in law is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell, episode 133, recorded October 13, 2011. Beyonce, bad laws, and restaurants. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Vast Conference, the ultimate in professionalism, clarity, and flexibility for your conference calls, all at a low price. For two Vast Conference calls free, with no commitment, go to vastconference.com and use promo code TWILL. Hi, folks, it's Denise Howell here, and you have joined us here for This Week in Law, which we like to call the Webb's Law Department at your service. We've got a panel of wonderful attorneys today to talk about everything interesting that's going on in technology law, starting with Stefan Kinsella from Texas. Hi, Stefan. Hey, Denise. Glad to be back. It's super to have you back. We're really excited to get your thoughts on all kinds of legislation that you've been thinking about that has been happening and percolating lately and that's going to affect us all. Also joining us is Bill Carlton from Seattle. Hi, Bill. Hi, Denise. How are you today? Wonderful. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be back. Appreciate it. Now, you're, you're the only lawyer that I know who's been personally occupying Wall Street, so I definitely uh, want to get into that with you shortly. And, I didn't uh, have get, the, I, yeah, I didn't have the I didn't have the nerve to actually uh, sleep at the at the park. I I, um, I thought about it. My uh, my kids wanted me to do it, but my girlfriend didn't want me to do it anyway. I did I didn't do it. <laughs> Your kids are into the camping aspect. It the weather. Uh, you know, I don't mean to trivialize the experience, but the, if I was going to do it, the weather while I was there was in the 80, 80 degrees and it was sunny. Although it started raining yesterday, so. And then the kids are not allowed to put tents up, so they're sleeping under tarps that they just lay over themselves. It's, so right. it's kind of intense. Well, I definitely want to hear more about that. We're glad we could catch you hard upon your return there from New York. But uh, before we get into that and other topics, I want to welcome back to the show Evan Brown from Hinshaw and Culbertson and InternetCases.com and the great city of Chicago, Illinois. Hello. Hey, well, thank you, Denise. It's great to be here. And you know, it's such a habit to say happy Friday to you. It's a lot of fun to be mixing it up, doing this on a, on a Thursday afternoon instead. So uh, good, to, good to talk with you. I know. It feels good to do the show early for some reason. I'm right, just right. very excited to get into everything we I, have to I discuss. Have, I have no idea what we're going to do you know, on Friday afternoon tomorrow. It's going to be like this liberating feeling to have the show over with. I know. It will be, huh? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, someone who's not feeling terribly liberated right now especially because there are bars and jail cell sets in the videos in question, is Beyonce Knowles, who uh, has danced herself right into a copyright conundrum. Stefan brought this one to my attention. And uh, if we go to um, Mike Masnick's site at Tech Dirt, he has a video up there that uh, compares side-by-side uh, the Beyonce video and the video of a Belgian choreographer named Anne-Theresa de Kiersmaker, uh, which have some very distinct similarities, uh, both the choreography, the sets, etc. Clearly, this is uh, Beyonce did do some borrowing from Anne-Theresa. 
Uh, and the, the question, if you look at the bottom video that you're seeing there on your screen, it's showing uh, the side-by-side -side with Beyonce and then the Belgian choreographer's video. And it, there's clearly some similarities. And then there are some things where um, some of the dance moves at the end of the right there, the roll that you just saw, if you're watching the video. Um, these are things that appeared also in Beyonce's video, but uh, you know, you would think were just sort of generic dance moves and the fact that they were in one choreographer's video wouldn't necessarily mean that they could sue about it. But when you look through the whole thing, you could see that some of the sequences were uh, almost verbatim taken from uh, Anna's and uh, the sets and the costumes. And, and as Mike Masnick points out, uh, once upon a time, we might've called this homage. Uh, now we call it copyright infringement. And apparently uh, there are legal proceedings that will, will go after Beyonce about this. Um, Stefan, you, you put this in for us. What do you think about uh, what's going on here and what should happen? Um, this is, there are some generic elements, but also it's pretty clear this was um, more than just uh, the sincerest form of flattery. Well, if I'm not mistaken, Beyonce is from my hometown, my current hometown of Houston, so I have to defend her uh, no matter what. But uh, <laughs> um, I watched it, and yeah, there were some elements that were similar. I don't know what your impression was or the other uh, panelist's impression was. It wasn't identical. It wasn't a copy. Um, but this is, I think, a natural outcome of the current copyright mentality. There's always a uh, – the question that seems to come up now is, was there too much copying or was it too literal? As if the implication is if it was a literal copy or a close copy, there would be something wrong with that. Um, but I don't see what was wrong with that. If I remember in the, in the, in the YouTube video that showed the comparison, there were um, – Older scenes from you know decades in, in the past, which had similar moves, which showed that even the the accused copyright hold uh, the copyright holder here um, was doing things that that she had learned from others. So, I mean, the basic idea is that copying is a way of emulating or competing or an homage, as you say. Um, and the basic idea should be what is wrong with copying in the first place. Uh, so, I would say that it wasn't a direct copy. Um, there probably were elements she learned from, but everyone learns from others. We no, nothing is in a vacuum, uh, and this is not a new type of suit. There's a, I was looking up in my old c4sif.org posts, and there's been a host of these types of uh, accusations over the years. There was something called the electric slide, which people do at weddings and things, and some um, you know some artist was sued a couple decades ago about that by the by the artist of the original slide, and uh, I think it shows that there's an incompatible incompatibility between copyright law and basically freedom because if, if one person can tell other people under the guise of copyright law how they can use their bodies, then it's like a form of enslavement. I mean you shouldn't be able to tell someone what they can do with their own body as long as they're not trespassing against other people's property. It kind of goes to the root of what copyright law is, too, because as I understand it, reading our statute in the U.S., it has to be not just um, something that is expressed, but it has to be put down in a fixed form of expression. Uh, Evan, do you see any problems uh, with this Belgian choreographer's claims along those lines? 
Well, not so much of a problem formalistically, because as I understand copyright, when it comes to, you know, dancing, you know, can you handle this, is uh, it's actually in the, the choreography as it would be, you know, written out in much the same way that a musical composition, you know, think sheet music and, you know, lyrics written out is subject to copyright protection in addition to the actual sound recording, sometimes in addition to the actual sound recording. So I am a little bit at a loss as to how to make much sense out of this Beyonce situation because for one thing, it it doesn't really comport with my aesthetic. It's not that I don't appreciate Beyonce. She's she's very talented and, and a lot of folks like her, but I don't I can't have a rich enough or a, a, a the ability to see into the subtleties of the choreography to to make much of a comparison at all. For me it it presents the question or it begs the question that a lot of the folks in the IRC are expressing here is like, wait, are you kidding? You know, dance moves are subject to copyright protection. And, and it would be interesting. I'm wondering if you know uh, this, Stefan, your, your knowledge of the history of intellectual property law is so encyclopedic. It seems that there had to be some kind of wacky special interest uh, at work when choreography got written into one of the forms of works protected by copyright. That seems so odd to us uh, today. Not that dancing is unimportant or anything like that, but when we think of the type of works that are, that are protected by copyright, the types of works that we spend the most time thinking about, you know, literary works, graphical works, uh, musical works, things like that. Yes, uh, choreographic works and also pantomimes are protected by uh, copyright. It's right there in the Copyright Act. Look, look it up. Uh, you know, was did Marcel Marceau have uh, some kind of uh, special interest in the U.S. to lobby Congress to get pantomimes uh, in the uh, in the Copyright Act? That's that's what I think about this this kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I'm actually not sure about the actual uh, special interest legislation that got these special things in there in the beginning of the uh, U.S. copyright law, but I think that these are. When you make up laws by legislation, it's unanticipated how they're going to uh, affect society, especially when the internet comes online. I, I think there was a video – I don't know if you guys talked about it previously, but remember there was a Beyonce video, the YouTube of a little, a little baby emulating the dance moves, right? Mm-hmm. And theoretically, that baby – I mean Beyonce could sue her. Beyonce wanted to turn the, turn the tides on someone because the baby or the parents putting the video up were – copying the moves that Beyonce had put down too. So um, I think that uh, there's a lot of unanticipated consequences from making law you know, with a committee, a, a Congress or a legislature. Um, but I, I don't know the, uh, the actual uh, <laughs> the special interest lobbying that went, went on there with choreographers. But um, you know, every generation or decade or two, there's another whole group asking for new protections like the fashion industry is now trying to be included in copyright law as well. So choreographers had their, had their say it one day. I'm sure it was tap dancing. Yeah, more in, in IRC says that uh, they've uh, copyrighted walking and we all owe royalties now. So just <laughs> so you know. Uh, Bill, what do you think of all this? Um, I, don't, I, I don't know that I have the eye to, to, to see exactly what move is copying what move. I think I, maybe I'm looking – maybe I'm more of a consumer of movies or film because visual uh, graphically, the look and feel of the, the two videos is, is different. They're, they're different 
palate and different. So I don't know. I, I I'm not sure I would be confused any. Um, but I don't. I just think I probably just don't have the 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 right eye to see where the where the uh, where the copying is. The maybe. I don't know if the person bringing the the choreographer bringing the complaint is complaining to get uh, to draw attention, or or if it's kind of hurt feelings that that if there was a um, influence there that they're not being attributed morally with some kind of acknowledgement that they were an influencer or, or somebody that uh, that that Beyonce uh, you know admires or something. Maybe that would have. Maybe that would have appeased uh, the, the the feelings of uh, somebody who felt like they originated, they did something original that that is being repeated. But I guess if I were a choreographer and and Beyonce wanted to do some of my moves, I might be flattered. I guess. Yeah, and I I think the procedural aspects of this are are kind of fascinating too, since we've got someone in Belgium trying to enforce these supposed rights against. An American entertainer. I'm um, not sure how she plans to to go about that, uh, but you're right. I mean, it it kind of strikes me as an episode of a potential storyline from 90210. You know, the the famous <laughs> rock star, singer, dancer, getting her inspiration from some obscure but super talented choreographer, um, and you know, I'm sure it will continue to play out in that fashion. But um, I, I, it struck me as something worthy of discussion because it's not, the, as Stefan points out, it's not the first time it's come up in the dance context. It's not even the first time it's come up in the body movement context. We had our IRC person uh, joking about copywriting walking, but I do a kind of yoga called Bikram yoga. It was invented by this controversial guy in Los Angeles uh, named Bikram Chaudhry who uh, copyrighted, who did write down his 26 postures of yoga that he quote unquote invented. Of course, they've been around since the days that Sanskrit was a spoken language. And uh, he registered them with the copyright office. And then he proceeded to shut down the yoga studio that I used to go to all the time, you know, came after the owners and told them, you know, you guys are not... uh, doing things my way, you're not paying me appropriate royalties and, you know, we're going to have to do something about that. And rather than, um, you know, take it to the finality of litigation, they, um, they did get sued. And then I think they, they ultimately just caved and packed it in and, and having had that happen now, you know, of course that had a chilling effect on everyone else who was similarly situated. So did you really um, just say it had a chilling effect against uh, your yoga studio? No, it's only 95 degrees, not 105 or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, it's hard to have a chilling effect on Bikram yoga, but but it did. Um, so, uh, Denise, can I mention something on this? Um, yes. There's a couple of related um, things. There's, of course, the recent spate of lawsuits, uh, um, copyright-based lawsuits against people with tattoos, mm-hmm. um, especially those that appear in movies. You know, and they have a a tattoo on their face and they're, they're an actor and uh, I can't remember the particulars of this one but there's there been some where the the artist that designed the original di- you know design that was put in a tattoo on someone's face sued the movie studio of course they have deep pockets because they included an actor in the film with a tattoo and I think the solution was to blur out the tattoo or use special effects to change it or which is 
in my view, ridiculous. Um, and then trademark also enters into this. I believe there was a case a few years ago where one of the pro wrestlers um, – I don't remember the details because I'm not a big pro wrestling fan, but he had some trademark move. He holds his hand up in a certain way, and uh, he was actually suing people for using that uh, hand gesture. Um, and on, on the on the attribution front, it seems to me that um, if Beyonce and people like that weren't afraid of being sued for copyright infringement and shaken down for royalty payments, they wouldn't be afraid to give attribution to people whose influence they uh, uh, they learned from or who they borrowed from. Uh, but it could mm. be that there's no attribution because they're afraid it would be an admission that could get them, you know, liability. Mm. Mm. So this this may be a bit far afield, but uh, over in IRC, Key Synergy wanted us to check out Laban Movement Analysis, um, something created by Rudolf Laban, which is a way and language for interpreting, describing, visualizing, and notating all ways of human movement. Um, I guess that's that's a way of um, putting movement into a fixed form just to make the lawyers who want to pursue such claims happier <laughs> if, they, uh, if they were to espouse Laban movement analysis. So thanks for giving us that. The, the IRC, by the way, is going crazy with our discussion here saying, you know, this just shows why lawyers are the worst scum of the earth. And, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, we generally tend to agree with you all on that front. And we, uh, we try to be as unscummy as possible. And Bill actually has been being about as unscummy as any lawyer I uh, I know right now because uh, you know lawyers get this um, we're frequently cliched classed in with sharks or called sharks and I was thinking before the show this morning that 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 actually is kind of inaccurate because we're really more the remora glomming on to the sharks of other people's business at least on the business lawyer <laughs> side mm. <laughs> suckerfish. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's probably a more accurate description. But uh, Bill picked up uh, and left Seattle where he lives and went out to New York because he was so taken by these Occupy Wall, Wall Street demonstrations. He wanted to go and participate and see for himself what was going on there. And he just got back last night. And, and Bill, why don't you fill us in? I, I live in Orange County, California, which we hear uh, sort of humorously called behind the orange curtain. And I guarantee you very little is getting occupied here. So, uh, although maybe it should be. So um, why, why don't you uh, tell us what's going on? Well, it's, it's, a, um, it's a very savvy um, um, occupation. I guess I'll use the, the word that the movement, uh, the way they describe themselves, uh, you could call it a, an act of uh, civil disobedience. You could call it uh, performance art. You could call it um, um, uh, consciousness raising. You know, the first couple of weeks, there was a lot of chatter and complaining that the, that the media is not covering this. Uh, the f I went there Sunday night and uh, attended the General Assembly's Sunday night through Tuesday and, and kind of hung out at the park for parts of four days. There's plenty of media attention on it now, so you know as a, as a strategy, it seems to really be working. The 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 camera crews and the reporters there are not just um, mostly. I'd say half of them are from from other countries. They're uh, uh, Al Jazeera correspondents and and uh, uh, Japanese and Chinese uh, uh, news crews, 
and all kinds of just almost every corner people being interviewed. But the life of the community is governed by this uh, this uh, concept called the General Assembly that meets every night at seven, and it's a this open forum. Uh, where the logistics of the occupation of Zuccotti Park in, in lower Manhattan, just a block up from Wall Street, are, are discussed. And it's all process, process, process. The, the, um, the, the meetings uh, even, even get into whether the people chosen to be facilitators that evening, whether anybody objects to them being facilitators. And uh, they go through things like uh, like um, committee reports and and uh, how money is being spent and concerns about safety and cleanliness in in the park, uh, logistical planning for the next marches, and uh, it's all it's all about process. In terms of messaging, even at the general assemblies, there some of the rules include that you're not supposed to express your personal political opinions that 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 those are reserved for different different times or different formats and uh-huh. the 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 organizers even make a point of 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 you know distinguishing between their personal stories their personal motivations for being there and their personal politics and and the and the movement itself which uh, i don't i don't know i feel it's very powerful i found the the human microphone aspect of how information is disseminated to be uh, really very moving and and uh, and um, i I admire what 's going on I admire what they 're doing and it it seems to be from what I can tell it seems to be really really effective in getting people to think on the 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 uh, the millionaires march that took place uh, was that tuesday i 'm losing track it was either i think it was i think it was tuesday uh, and it wasn't. It wasn't. It was only a few hundred people. The Guardian had a really objective, good story of that. And it was an event that was uh, organized by a, a a local activist group that preceded the Occupy Wall Street movement. And I think they were happy to have the Occupy Wall Street movement join them because it brought a, a whole ton of media coverage. But I noticed as the as the people were marching up Park Avenue. The, the, the workers, people working on scaffolding and on the street and the doormen um, were taking flyers and chatting with the, with the people and, and, and not being um, uh, derisive or dismissive. I also felt, and I, haven't, I wasn't there when they had a big march, and I, and I, you know, I saw seen the videos of the, of the young women who were pepper sprayed and you know, seeing instances on YouTube of things that went wrong. But just speaking from my experience of the last four days, I don't even think the cops are antagonistic. The the um, the, the few I interacted with and the ones I saw there uh, over the last four days are 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 polite and and uh, and uh, and even and even respectful. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm rambling at this point. I uh, but I. I it's a, it's an ex, it's an experiment in in direct democracy. I think to me. If I had to summarize, I'd say the message was um, so much of of what uh, government does and what business does and what banks and finance and the and the system, I guess you could say, does is is occupies our attention, occupies our 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 mind space, and and <coughs> normal people don't have a have a seat in the process, and and uh, they just sort of say, you know, we're we're going to take our seat here we're, we're going to be here we're going to sit in we're going to be around and you're going to have to deal with us at some point 
And you t you uh, told us there was actually a legal twist to all of this um, that you found pretty interesting having to do. Uh, we were discussing this right before the show, Evan and I, with the fact, I think, that this is private property, Zuccotti Park, where most of this is happening. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I guess, it, maybe it's maybe it's common in a lot of cities, but New York has these uh, these public-private spaces. I'm not an expert on this, but, but the, the idea would be when a developer wants to build a grand new structure, part of the uh, concessions they might, they might give, maybe in exchange for an extra height allowance or some zoning variance, would be to establish space within the developed property that would be open to the general public. And Zuccotti Park, formerly known as Liberty Park, it's in a very significant space in, a, in civic terms. It's about a couple blocks from the World Trade Center site, and it's just a block up from Trinity Church and across the street, Trinity Church, then across the street from Wall Street. It's sort of situated in a very historic part of, of, uh, of the country. And, and, and I, I, the, 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 the owner of the building that was developed there um, um, you know, had to dedicate um, the park for public use and it's it's in this kind of zone where it's not entirely a public park but it's but it's it's subject to you know like for one thing i think one of the rules being broken is that people shouldn't be camping there technically you know the the mayor is being very deft in how he's handling what's going on because he, he's being accommodating because, you know, New York's a big city and, you know, they're world-class city and they're used to this kind of thing. But he's being dismissive at the same time. He's kind of walks that fine line to, to be able to pull, pull that off. And, you know, his, they're doing things to, to actively discourage or make it more difficult. One of them being the, the, the ordinance against uh, people aren't supposed to be camping there. So there's an ordinance against tents. And they're they're not letting the kids erect tents in this in the space, but uh, but but you know they're I think they're allowing the, the them to, to sleep there under the uh, uh, um, uh, notion that uh, they're not they're not technically violating things by not setting up tents. Similarly, the um, there's a um, ordinance against use of amplification or bullhorns in uh, in public spaces and you know, that's something that's been been written a lot about by by people that the that the uh, maybe may a little bit of urban legend but that 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 restriction has led to the phenomenon of this human microphone which occupy movements in other cities which don't have the restrictive uh, amplification ordinances are adopting almost as a kind of an ethos or a method or a philosophy of how the general assemblies ought to work the, the idea being because of the limit of not being able to amplify your voice because you have hundreds, perhaps thousands circled around the, uh, the platform, which they call the stack for whoever has the floor and is speaking, uh, lacking amplification, the people surrounding the speaker repeat what the speaker says and then, then the next wave in back of them repeats that. So the, 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 the message cascades out in little phrases or snippets. Um, it's, it's right. an interesting so, way of 
There's some video of this and and some, I'd I'd say, pretty snarky kind of oriented post over on Huffington Post uh, saying that, you know, this human microphone is is kind of a brilliant innovation, but not working so well. And that people who are trying to make jokes and humorous comments in their addressing the crowd are finding that it gets lost in the translation as someone tries to yell very loud what they have just said. Um, Do you think that it worked okay or... What was your experience with it? My experience of it was different. I thought it worked. I thought it worked really well. And mm-hmm. one of the links you put up on the um, the show notes, I read this morning. It talked about how it's not possible to get a good intonation with a with the human microphone. That you lose some of that. And I felt just the opposite. There, here's an example I want to give you. I'm looking for it because I wrote it down <coughs> on my the other day this this was my favorite this is this is one of my favorites and in this particular sequence the uh the human microphone was on 2x generation so they they decide depending on the organizers decide depending on the size of the crowd at the moment how many times what the originating person says should be repeated it might be a 1x it might be a 2x it might be a 3x this particular evening the first evening i was there it was a 2x generation and I'm just going to redo it here, read aloud, and, and try, to, try to match the intonation. The, this, this, the, the sentence went like this. If you have an expenditure, then the next group says, if you had an expenditure, the third group said, if you have an expenditure, and I'll just keep going, over $100, over $100, over $100, please talk to finance, please talk to finance, please talk to finance before spending the money before spending the money, before spending the money. And I thought that was quite, that intonation did get through. The repeaters were faithful to it, appreciated the, the humor in it. Um, I, I thought, it, I thought it, was, it, was, it was moving and it was effective because by being part of the, it's, in, you know, it's inviting, by being almost like being in church and having a call and response or a, or a responsive <coughs> prayer, by being by participating in what's being said, you aren't necessarily endorsing it, but you're acknowledging what's being said. You're listening to it, and you're passing it along and sharing it to those around you. So I, I thought it was it was it was a manifestation of the participatory ethos of the of the whole the whole event, the whole movement. And it's it's sort of a parallel to something we talk about a lot on this week in law that if there's a workaround to something that is a legal barrier. Folks will find it, and it may not be the most perfect workaround, but it's going to work for them. Uh, Stefan, any thoughts on what's going on here, including uh, we have a link in here about Anonymous and uh, their jumping on the Occupy Wall Street bandwagon and threatening to shut down uh, NYSE-type sites. I don't believe that sort of thing has happened yet, but you never want to count these guys out. Um, Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I think um, what Bill mentioned was interesting. Um, one interesting thing about it was, you know, in the uprisings in uh, uh, the Middle East, et cetera, um, in Asia, they have been using high tech to get around government regulations, Twitter and um, uh, Facebook and uh, email and uh, text messaging. And in one of the most high tech countries in the world, we're using a low tech way to get around it. I, I almost wonder if someone's going to come up with 
you know, a simple Android or iPhone app that lets you <laughs> do what we used to do on CB radios or walkie-talkies and, you know, have a guy just speak into his microphone and everyone in the, in the vicinity hear it on their cell phone or something instead of uh, uh, this low-tech way. But oh, wow, the, the, the Occupy mo- app. Right, the Occupy app or something like that. I, I'm not. I w- I'm curious how the ordinance applies if the park is private property. I assume it. You seem like the private owners could allow amplification if they wanted to, but maybe the ordinance trumps private property rights. I don't know, but the. I think the Occupy Wall Street movement. I don't know if you've seen. There's a Venn diagram going around trying to, in simplistic terms, show the Tea Party versus the. OWS movement and show that mm. the Tea Party is basically against government control, which is not true, I think, because you'll hear Tea Partiers say, I want the government to keep their cotton picking hands off my social security payments. And it's like, well, <laughs> that comes from the government. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, and then they say that the, um, uh, the OWS are against corporatocracy or corporate power, uh, and the overlap would be crony capitalism or the the interface between Capitalism or abusive capitalism or capitalism run amok in the in the state, which I think is actually true. I think the OWS people um, are sensing something that's wrong. They don't quite have the right analysis of the um, of the disease that's giving rise to the symptoms, which is the um, the state and its uh, uh, it, and its intermixing with the economy, its regulations. It's um, and the bailout of Wall Street was done by the state. Sure, it was done at the behest of Wall Street companies. Just like welfare recipients will come to the trough if you put you know benefits out, um, but to ask the state to fix a problem that the state has caused, I think is they're missing um, some of the um, uh, of the analysis. Um, but it is good, I think, that they are organizing on their own. And in fact, what they're doing shows that you don't always need the state. If they're organizing independently, it shows the stateless model or the free society model uh, can work without state intervention and that they're they're trying to keep people to channel their political views instead of uh, you know using it as a platform. Um, on their own. I've seen some YouTube videos of some Austrian economics-oriented and educated people at OWS. Uh, there's a young guy who was talking about Ron Paul and the problems with the Fed and the problems with crony capitalism, who was very informed and literate. And Hopefully, there's a lot of discussions among the people there of different flavors, Tea Party, right-wingers, left-wingers, people that are just hostile to something they sense is a significant you know, institutional unfairness that's going on. Yeah, well, I don't. Stefan, think you had you had to be old enough to remember CB radios to have come up with your brilliant idea there. I think that uh, ZJ Driver is going to go out and start coding right now. And uh, <laughs> Beatmaster in IRC points out the the rich, wonderful irony of using the products of. Apple and Google in the form of the smartphones and the infrastructure of AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile to facilitate the protests against large corporations. Um, yeah, there's actually a, de- a debate going on now in libertarian circles of which I'm a part between the sort of regular libertarians and the left libertarians. Some of the left libertarians have said that, that there's a diagram going around or a picture that's been doctored up to show that all the protesters are using these products. And some of the left libertarians said that's an unfair criticism, just like it's unfair um, of people that are more in favor of state interventions to uh, criticize 
us when we use public roads, um, et cetera, because we have no choice. And if the criticism of crony capitalism is correct, then the reason that corporations dominate the provision of all these goods and services is because of a sort of unholy alliance between the state and corporations. I don't completely myself agree with that uh, criticism, but um, there's something a little bit too easy about that criticism of people for using what's available in society, whether it's state-provided or crony capitalism-provided or private sector-provided. Right, and I, I don't think it's the point of any of the people involved in these demonstrations to check their iPhones or Android phones on the fire and say, you know, we are renouncing the product of these corporations. I think that they want them to run differently. Uh, Bill, mm-hmm. is that about right? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. And and picking up on something Stephen said before about he hoped there was a lot of di- there were a lot of dialogues going on in the in the park about. You know, people's personal political views. There definitely were. There were libertarians there. There were Ron Paul supporters there. There were anarchists there. There were socialists there. There were all kinds of people there. But the movement itself, you know, and this will be the success of it if it if it if it's going to sustain itself, is is aggressively. It's kind of weird to say is aggressively nonpartisan. Um, the, the the general assemblies are not supposed to. People are not supposed to be soapboxing and airing their 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 personal political views in terms of not to be a propagandist, but in terms of the, 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 the messaging, you know, in the, in the, um, this is kind of fun. There's a publication called the occupied wall street journal talk about, Mm -hmm. um, trademark or copyright infringement, but because the font and everything is, yeah, yeah. But, but I, I really, really like this bit as a piece of writing. It's an editorial about trying to explain what people can't understand about why there's no list of demands. And, and, it, and this part says um, – talks about how the politicians are trying to, to race to the front of the line and get in front of the movement. And they, they're right, but how can they run out in front of something that is in front of them? They cannot. For Wall Street and Washington, the demand is not on them to give us something that it isn't theirs to give. It's ours. It's on us. We aren't going anywhere. We just got here. And I think I think people are just kind of coming with their smartphones and their and their um, and their and their good educations. I saw one article ridiculing the some of the protesters because they were from Ivy League schools. They were there, and that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why, why kids with a good education wouldn't necessarily put that critical thinking and that education to good use. But yeah, there are ironies. In, in, in one of the meetings, they were talking about the problem of, of people making – people on the committee making expenditures on the na- in the name of the committee. They weren't authorized, as in that quote I said later, and then they were instituting a policy of people if they had expenditures over $100, they were to come to the finance working group and get uh, prepaid debit cards. Uh, so there's a there's no little amount of irony there that that's you know that's probably a financial product that you know that that the Wall Street financiers are are taking their cut on each one of those uh, each one of those credit cards. Evan, maybe Beyonce will head out there and start leading the protesters in an, an original <laughs> dance or two. Yeah, I, I hope so. You know, so that, that there's needs to be something to uh, to make it more evocative. I guess you know my. My problem with this is that that fundamental dissonance that we've been talking about here, the the fact that they're using these corporate products, you know, that these products, 
uh, that the, the, the protesters are the beneficiaries of this, these corporate endeavors. And, and, you know, a motif that I see through, you know, the IRC and hear other people talking about is, you know, the corporations aren't inherently evil. It's just that the, the way that the power is balanced in all of this stuff in the situation right now might be a little bit out of whack. And so I certainly don't have anything deep or insightful to, to say about this you know, on the political layer, uh, it's not a political show. We're not really here to talk about political stuff anyway. The only thing I really have to say about this is I hope, I really hope that the creators of South Park give treatment to the concept of the human microphone. I think Mad Stone and Trey Parker <laughs> could do some really wonderful stuff with, with Stan Marsh's dad leading one of those things. That's just, that's just made fun. But, but not the human centipede, hopefully. Oh, that's an awesome yeah. that's a, that's, maybe that's a idea. Too. yeah there we go I <laughs> thought they did something about the human centipede if I, I couldn't remember but uh, we'll, you know, we'll leave it, leave it to them to figure something out <laughs> <laughs> well uh, we're here today with Evan Brown who's just been speaking and Stefan Kinsella and William Carlton and we've got lots more to discuss including updates about OnStar SciStar um, foul language and restaurants. But before we get to any of that, I want to thank our sponsor for this episode of This Week in Law, which is Vast Conference. This show is brought to you by Vast Conference. And if you're like most of us, you want to be professional in every aspect of your business. And when you think about it, professionalism begins with those all important conference calls and with clients and colleagues. What makes a conference call professional? Well, you need a dial-in number you can give out for calls at a moment's notice. You need clear connections for when you and your call, call participants dial in. The popping and delays that you can get from voice over IP can be embarrassing and irritating. And for large calls, you need the ability to manage call participants online. So Vast Conference has put this all together for you in a professional, affordable, and advanced package. It enables you to quickly connect two or more callers on the phone. You can have up to 300 callers at once, uh, even though most conference calls have three to five participants, so you can see the flexibility that Vast Conference offers you. They give you both a regular dial-in number and a toll-free number, and you use these to set up calls at any time. Vast calls are clear because they use fiber optic lines and high-end teleconferencing equipment, something you don't get from voice over IP. Vast includes a well-designed conference call management interface, which you can access on their website to manage user, users and callers. And for large calls, you can have question and answer sessions. You can record any call instantly as an MP3 file with no special equipment. And you can access detailed usage tracking and billing codes for internal accounting. Vast also comes with a friendly, enthusiastic customer service team. They call it above and beyond customer service. And the pricing for this professional conference service is low and it's pay as you go. You pay two and a half cents a minute for regular toll calls and six cents a minute for 800 number calls. And you decide which number you're going to give out to your call participants. Sign up is fast and easy and there are no commitments or contracts. You pay only for the calls you host. And for our audience, we have an exclusive. You can have two business calls for free up to 300 minutes to give you a chance to try out the service. So to take advantage, please go to vastconference.com and sign up for a free account. It's fast and easy, and they'll give you a regular toll number and a regular toll-free number, so you can start using your numbers for calls right away. Be sure to use the promo code TWIL, T-W-I-L, to get your two business calls for free. That's vastconference.com, 
promo code TWILLED. Thank you so much, Fast Conference, for your support of This Week in Law. Uh, So a couple of weeks ago, we uh, were talking about OnStar and how they took a bunch of flack uh, for uh, keeping records on folks using their service after they were no longer actually signed up for the service. Um, Lots of privacy issues there. And this is a, a situation where the, now, please excuse the bad pun since we're talking about motor vehicles where the squeaky wheel actually got the grease. Um, <laughs> people complaining uh, led to um, congressional pressure and ultimately OnStar decided to do away with the technology that was leading to this privacy concern. So um, I just wanted to update folks on that since we did talk about it when it was an open issue. Now they've actually reversed uh, what's going on and closed that privacy hole. Uh, anybody have any quick comments on that before we move on? Evan? Um, just, it, they really have egg on their face about this one. You know, the uh, one of their PR people said that, oh, you know, the reason, one of OnStar's PR people said, the reason we wanted to do this was to alert people, what was it if there were product recalls or natural disasters? Now, why do you need to keep tracking people where their locations, you know, perpetually for to do that? I would believe them more if they were going to do something really beneficent like, um you know, track down your stolen vehicle. But that's, you know, I guess what one of the main purposes of OnStar is for anyway. So uh, it, it looked pretty unjustifiable, this, uh, this privacy uh, misstep that they made on this one. So I'm glad they, glad they changed their mind. It seems like something that they maybe just were not even quite aware was happening and that someone caught it. And once it was brought to their attention, uh, they did the right thing. Uh, Stefan, any thoughts? No, I agree with Evan, and uh, I do think it was a misstep, but I think it shows how uh, even when companies, even large ones like this, make mistakes, um, there can be feedback, and they can change their policies relatively quickly. Um, By contrast, um, the governmental agencies that some people were calling for to step in and regulate OnStar here uh, have been collecting data for decades or or longer – and these things change glacially slowly, and uh, I think that the collections of data by the you know about the feds it's a much bigger threat to your civil liberties and your your privacy than um, some company like this. So I think it's good that market pressure can be brought to bear. They need to be exposed, um, but at least they can change, and there's competition and alternatives um, in cases where they don't respond quickly enough. Yep, I think that's right. How about you, Bill? Any thoughts on OnStar? Yeah, yeah I, I see it in terms of in user-generated <coughs> content terms. It, to me, it's it's uh, structurally pretty much the same thing as as you know Facebook monetizing user posts or or Twitter putting ads on 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 the back of you know of um, user activity. The the you, it almost it almost brings you to the point where you want to ask the question because obviously OnStar is valuing. The information enough that they want to continue to, to maybe not spend a lot of money because they already have the installation, but but they want to they want to manage that that information even when a person doesn't want to be a customer anymore and presumably isn't paying them anymore. So it raises for me the question of you know what what are the economics and and what's the price point at which you know maybe users should say what will you pay me to be exposed to to the information or to give you the content I have to give you or to allow you to track me? Obviously that data. OnStar saw it as valuable for purposes that that didn't have to do with serving the the particular customer that had already terminated. 
Yep, I agree. And and that's reminiscent of what Doc Searles and the vendor relationship management folks have been working on for years. And they're starting to get a bit more attention as well, which is a good thing. Um, so we talked about OnStar. Let's talk about SciStar. This is the company that was putting Mac OS X on their own hardware. Uh, and they have been wending their way through the court system unsuccessfully for some time. And I think their uh, their lack of success has now reached finality. Evan, can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is an Apple story that in large part flew under the radar with so much other Apple stuff happening in the last few weeks, last two or three <clears throat> weeks, you know, with the release of the iPhone 4S and, you know, of course, Steve Jobs passing away. So, if you'll remember, a few years ago, it was a big deal when SciStar uh, released its line of, of hardware that would run, um, you know, Mac OS X on it. And so, um, the what uh, what Apple did was sued for a number of things: trademark infringement, unfair competition, and importantly, copyright infringement, saying that loading uh, the the Mac operating system onto these onto this hardware was uh, an infringement because it was outside of the scope of the of the the uh, license agreement for the operating system and uh, SciStar um, file you know raised as a defense um, the the idea that this is copyright misuse and copyright misuse is a doctrine that essentially says um, a, a copyright holder uh, cannot use copyright law to enforce rights that are really outside of the uh, scope of that copyright and what the copyright is intended to protect, namely, you know, the exclusive rights to make copies so that it, it hinders the development of competing products. In this case, SciStar lost at the trial court level and it went up to appeal uh, in the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out there in California and SciStar lost there as well. The court uh, affirming the lower courts holding that uh, Apple's requirement or Apple's, you know, filing suit over this copyright infringement was not an instance of copyright misuse uh, because Apple's requirement that the operating system only be used on Apple's hardware did not stifle or somehow discourage the development of competing products because SciStar was free to develop its own hardware and its new software. You know, what SciStar was trying to do was its own hardware with Apple's software. And so the, the court held that that copyright misuse defense uh, did not work. So the net result, uh, the net effect of that is um, the, the, the license agreement for uh, that, that Apple has requiring that the software be used only in connection on certain soft on certain hardware uh, is valid and and enforceable and so that 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 certainly ties up uh, it secures the the closed system that we have come to expect uh, from from Cupertino. Right and and uh, Dark in IRC uh, just put the comment and you were saying it ties up. The closed system. He uh, he put the comment in IRC that it's tying, uh, presumably from an antitrust standpoint, which is what uh, Microsoft got in so much trouble for with IE. Um, I think in the case of Apple, they pretty much are able to skirt that because of their lack of market dominance. 
uh, on the personal computer marketplace. Um, Bill, any thoughts on this? Um, I, I'm looking at the uh, at the at the chatter too, and and so, somebody made the remark about uh, a lot of our personal life is in the computers, and I wonder if they're they're um, you know thinking in terms of of uh, you know data being captured on on a on a proprietary box. I mean, I I don't know if I I don't know if I see that because. One, you know, I know there are implications too. If you're going to put your data up in the cloud somewhere, or, uh, or, or, or I guess you could put it on remote storage. Um, no, I mean I read Evan's post. I thought it was good, and I I, I think it was the the Evan. Correct me if I'm misreading this, but I thought it was kind of the Ninth Circuit checking back in on a on a on a fundamental point and and saying no changes there. You know that that's 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 not, they're not going to let. Uh, copyright abuse be used in that way to to upset Apple's Apple cart. Sorry, that was a bad one. <laughs> yeah, you said it. You you went right ahead and said it. <laughs> uh, you're you're right, Bill. That's uh, there's there's really nothing new. We don't learn something new and revolutionary about copyright law and that doctrine of of copyright misuse in all of this. What it does do for us is place it within. Uh, you know, culturally, a very intriguing context uh, because of, and the reason that it's so culturally intriguing is because of the ecosystem that really that didn't pertain to the facts of the case. I mean, what they were dealing here was, you know, the OS X, you know, the operating system, you know, on the uh, on the, on the laptop or the uh, or whatever, not the not the mobile environment, but it does translate well into the uh, closed system that is the, you know, the app store and that uh, those tight restrictions that Apple does put, make, ensuring that the hardware uh, only runs certain software and that the software is only on certain hardware. I mean, I just said the same thing twice, right? But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, that's, that's what makes this so intriguing and so noteworthy is because of the cultural significance it has to us in these uh, products that we come to, to love uh, so enthusiastically. Right. The, t- the tying argument could be made a lot more forcefully in the mobile arena where Apple and the iPhone is so dominant. Stefan, any thoughts about uh, tying up your operating system and not making it available for other pieces of hardware, either contractually or using copyright? Yeah, in the SciStore case... Um I think when you ask people, you know, what do you think about this result? Um, they're thinking, was it, was it right? Was it just? Was it fair? And that's because they have this old-fashioned mentality or conception of courts as deciding disputes between people and trying to come up with the just result, which is sort of the common law idea or the way law used to be made or formed. But when you have law predominated by arbitrary legislative statutes like the antitrust law and the patent law and the copyright law, the judge's job uh, – I wish I could find the quote. Uh, there's a great quote from 1890 by um, this guy who was opposing the codification of New York's law, and he said you know, that the, the, the judge's traditional search for justice has been replaced – this sort of manly search for justice has been replaced by the mere pedestrian task of trying to interpret words, whether the result would be just or not. Um, I think judges are sometimes in a difficult – there's sometimes no right answer because what you have is you have the antitrust laws, which the, the state imposes to try to ostensibly 
limit the ability of private actors to acquire monopoly power. And at the same time, the state hands out monopoly grants of privilege in the form of copyright patent. So the courts can only say there's a tension between these laws, and they have to – I don't know, flip a coin or make a decision. Uh, my sense is that the judge here probably decided correctly. Uh, once you grant copyrights, then you're going to have this. Um, it, I think it's unfortunate, but you really can't blame Apple for using the legal rights that the state gives it. Um, it leads to an interesting um, question, which I blogged about a month or two ago on the Mises blog about comparing whether Apple or Microsoft, which one benefited more in its current success from state IP law. And I think it's pretty clear Microsoft has because they're a software-dominated company. But Apple prim- used to be, at least until fairly recently, a hardware company. They were selling good hardware, and just like Mercedes can sell – nice hardware at a premium if it's at a higher price but higher quality. Apple could too. Um, So I do think Apple has benefited from cases like this, but I don't know if their success is essentially dependent on it. Um, I know my first computer in 1984 was a Franklin Ace Apple II Plus clone, and soon after that was a famous case. uh, Apple sued Franklin and, and got them shut down and prevented them from competing, and this Psystar case is just the the modern version of that. So Apple is benefited to some extent um, by these laws. I don't think their success is dependent on it. I don't think their closed system would look identical if they couldn't rely so much on um, copyright and patent law. Uh, On the other hand, Apple is at the receiving end of a lot of patent lawsuits too, Um, uh, sometimes retaliatory from Android manufacturers and sometimes from patent trolls. Uh, Let's check in with what's been going on in Washington recently. We have uh, talked about the signing into law of the American Invents Act and how folks were variously disappointed with the law. Um, You have, Stefan, done a great webinar on this, and uh, Evan has convinced me that I need to sit down and make my way through it, which I haven't done yet. He has and says it's just phenomenal. So in a nutshell, can you, can you give us your take on America Invents? Sure. Um, patent reform is always talked about, just like the uh, – uh, I've probably heard for 10 or 15 years now that the government is going to get rid of the uh, the marriage penalty. And so my wife and I haven't legally filed for divorce <laughs> to, get, to get that tax break waiting for this penalty to be erased, and of course it never happens. So they dangle a carrot of reform out in front of you for a long time. Um, Patent reform is the same way. You hear talk all the time about patent reform, but the organized patent bar and the the technical industries that rely upon patents always manage to keep the debate within very small parameters where if you propose any significant reform, then it's called radical and crazy and wacko. So all the reform that's really realistic that's talked about is always pretty minor and on the edges, and it's been – the current bill that was passed about a month ago… Uh, the American Invents Act has been pending for six or seven years, and of course, special interest groups uh, batted it back and forth. Now, the, the 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 received wisdom from the patent bar is that the big change is that we switched from the first to invent priority rule for patents to a first to file rule, which most I think all of the rest of the world has, and the the U.S. since the beginning or almost since the beginning has had a first to invent rule. Um, and we've changed, and 
you know, the, the, the received wisdom is that that's the big change brought by this law, and some people argue that it benefits big companies over small ones. My understanding is there's only like about 70 cases a year of independent invention of where, where you have conflicting patent applications, like two people file a patent simultaneously or relatively simultaneously for the same idea because they independently invented. And then they had to have an interference proceeding to determine which one conceived of the idea first because in the US, if you could show that you invented it first, you could win even if you filed it later. Well, they've gone to a simpler system where the guy that files first will now win in those cases. Um, but I don't think it's a big change at all except in a few marginal cases. I mean 70 cases out of maybe 300, 400,000 filings is not a very big number, and it doesn't really make a difference to the victims of patents, to the victims of patent trolls or patent aggressors or patent monopolists. Um, I'd say the biggest positive change was the addition of a general prior commercial user defense, which never existed before. Uh, before 1998, there was no defense at all. In 98, there was a narrow defense added for business method users who were prior users. They were grandfathered in. Uh, now that's been broadened inexplicably to me because it's actually going to weaken the power of patent aggressors to sue people who've been using an idea for a while but never bothered to patent it. So that's the biggest improvement, but I think it's um, – um, there's a lot that are – inside baseball that are not that interesting and that are not that big deals. Patent lawyers are going to have to learn the new rules, and of course they're getting a lot of business now because of this. Um, the bad changes are that the best mode requirement has been almost abolished, as has the penalty for false marking. The best mode requirement was one of the three requirements you had to satisfy to obtain a patent. You have to give a written description, has to be enabling, that is teach someone how to use it or make it. And it had to disclose your best mode so you couldn't keep your best way of doing it a trade secret but still get a patent claim that covered it because that violates the patent bargain that you disclose everything to the public in exchange for a temporary monopoly. Well, Congress has almost inexplicably gotten rid of that. Um, the penalties for best mode, um, if you fail to disclose best mode, it's still technically required, but there's no penalty if you don't disclose it, so it's really not a requirement anymore. False marking was this antitrust intersection we talked about earlier where um, if you claim to have a patent on a product that is not patented, it's potentially like an antitrust abuse because you're uh, assuming a monopoly. Uh, you're, you're basically scaring off competition even though you don't have a legal monopoly of patent. Uh, that has almost been eradicated by this law, and there are some bizarre uh, special interest uh, provisions in there like the uh, dog ate my homework rule um, <laughs> provision. Which um, I think there's a – I forgot the name of the – there's a famous law firm in, in the northeast and a, a big a biotech firm that uh, there's a provision in the law that allows you to extend the term of your patent if you are delayed by the FDA regulations when you get your pharmaceutical approved. And you have to apply for this apparently. I'm, I'm not a biotech lawyer, so I don't know how it works, but you have to apply. And some big – some law firm missed the filing date by a few days, and so – this patent on this very lucrative drug was going to expire earlier than it would have if they had obtained the FDA delay. And so for years, this law firm um, and their client has been lobbying Congress to patch the law to basically give them a second bite at the apple, and they did it in this law. And uh, it saves this law firm from hundreds of millions of dollars in a malpractice lawsuit and the, the company 
Um, so that provision, the law was changed basically to save apparently at the lobbying of one law firm and its client or former client maybe. Um, so Steven, that's the that bottom was, line of the AI. Sorry, go ahead. Stephen, I think the law firm was was Wilmer Hale. I think it was, yeah. Something like I a couple hundred right. million dollars they were facing. Yeah, yep, you're right. Well, now that we know the uh, the state of patent law in the wake of the Invents Act, I think it's worth pointing out. Cory Doctorow had a great post over on Boing Boing where he caught that Francis Gurry, the director general of the UN's World Intellectual Property Organization, fondly known as WIPO, uh, got up and said that he thought that the web would be much better off if it were all locked up in patents and if every user of the web needed to pay a license fee to use it. So there's a vision of a future for you all to ponder for a moment. Evan, did you take a look at this? I did. And, you know, I don't know if I should dare say anything because, you know, Stefan Kinsella is in this conversation as well. And if he were mm -hmm. to just address this, I think that there might be a small nuclear fusion kind of reaction because of the <laughs> absurdity of <laughs> I noticed he didn't identify the inventor of the internet in that comment. Um, is it DARPA? Is it – I mean, who's the inventor supposed to be? I don't know, but also speaking with him at the same table was the now head of CERN. So maybe that would have prompted some kind of recognition uh, of Tim Berners-Lee. I, I, uh, I think it was the same guy who got sued for infringing the copyright in the Macarena from the 1996 Democratic <laughs> National Convention. <laughs> there you go. Yes, absolutely. All right, well, from from the uh, absurd to the more absurd, um, probably the reason I most want to talk about this story about uh, trademark and the word tweet and Twitter is because that the writer for the Wall Street Journal, Justin Sheck, just could not contain himself from making pun after pun the... Um, Headline is foul, F-O-W-L language. Companies squawk about who gets tweet. And the article goes on in that vein throughout, um, mostly just pointing out that it's it's sort of uh, funny and, and schadenfreude-esque, I guess, to note that although um, the term tweet is used quite frequently with reference to Twitter, uh, Twitter did not rush in and trademark that term and some of its uh, API partners did. Um, so there are, it doesn't have the registered trademark in tweet for this purpose. And it's, it's trying without that to go around squashing various uses of the term. Uh, Stefan, what do you think of this? Well, I don't know if this pun will be received, but I think uh, people that make those kind of puns are dinosaurs. <laughs> yes, with this geeky audience, I think we... we yeah, my, my eight-year-old taught that me that. Yeah. Uh, it's, of course, absurd, and uh, but it's just one of many examples of lots of outrageous um, uses of trademark. You know, we, we, most of us focus on the um, abuses uh, that are obviously perceivable with copyright and patent abuse because these are basically just monopolies granted. But we mostly have a warm spot for trademark because you think this is a formalized way of stopping consumer fraud. Um, but I think it's in cases where trademark law is applied to cases like this where there's there's no there's no colorable claim of fraud. I mean who's being really confused or defrauded? 
by this uh, that I think its uh, trademark law can also be very abusive when it's uh, when it's applied to cases other than consumer confusion or fraud. Yeah, just pointing out the uh, the absurdity of the law that you're getting at, Stefan. In the article, there's the paragraph. Birdhouse makers are probably in the clear when it comes to tweet, says J. Thomas McCarthy, a professor at University of San Francisco Law School, who wrote a multi-volume treatise on trademark law. Since consumers are unlikely to confuse birdhouses with online messaging services. If we truly need a law professor to enunciate that, I think we've gotten to a really bad place. What do you think, Bill? <laughs> I I like the article. I like the uh, the attitude of it, and I like the I like the puns and the and the inside <laughs> jokes. When I was in, um, it reminds me of a headline. I was on the staff of my college uh, newspaper, and and uh, the government department at the school um, had some forum on uh, the um, what was the movement, the solidarity movement in Poland, and and some of us kids thought it was ironic that. Two of the professors that were being brought back to campus to speak on the topic had not had not received tenure and had left the college in the last couple of years. So we came up with the the line that this was our headline is just awful, but but it was, we were having so much fun laughing at it, we went with it. It was punted profs pool Polish perspectives. <laughs> so I, that, wow. That's what that, <laughs> That's what that uh, that headline made me think of. You know, the the uh, these this happens this happens uh, a, a fair bit, right? With some of the social media companies, they want to be ubiquitous and open, and they have a certain initial idealism, and then as they get around to thinking more seriously about about how they're trying to monetize and maybe even change their business model to take more control of being less of an open platform, more proprietary, uh, kind of after the fact, they want to they want to um, Retrade back and and claim rights that maybe have already kind of left left the barn, um, flown the coop. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got a bad fun in today. <laughs> <laughs> Beat me to that one, uh, Evan. Any thoughts on Tweety Tweety Tweet? Yeah, I mean, you were talking about you've got to ask a law professor about this. Mm-hmm. You know, we've gone too far. It's it's not just any law professor, you know, McCarthy on trademarks, you know, for mm. those who practice trademark law. I mean, he's, it's like consulting the oracle, you know, of, of you know, all things knowledge when it comes to, to trademarks. So, yeah, the, the real problem here is, is kind of the, the fundamental issue of what a trademark does. It serves to identify the source of the goods or services. And, you know, oftentimes that's thought of as, as property, erroneously thought of as property that's owned by the, the company. Uh, you know, the provider of those goods and services, but really it's more of a consumer protection kind of thing. And so it's, it's that, that whole uh, weirdness right there or that strangeness is illustrated by what happens when something that really probably arose, I don't, I don't know if there's a factual dispute over this, but the, the word tweet arose in the nomenclature of the, the user base. And so why is it that Twitter or how is it really that, that Twitter could, could claim exclusive rights to that? And, um, you know, it's it's um, it's something that's fun to fun to talk about and fun to think about. And I guess we also need to acknowledge, you know, that uh, um, you know that some of the lawyers inside Twitter are, Twitter are friends of the show. So it'd be interesting to see what uh, Alex McGillivary was really thinking about this stuff. We would never find that out. Um, but uh, that you know, that's the weirdness about it all is is how it's such a, a user based type of of word. Uh, and and how that relates to trademark law underscores that that uh, that kind of aspect of of this whole 
protection scheme. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if terms of service for social sites, which the terms of service for Twitter, at least when they initially <laughs> came out of the coop, were um, very yeah. uh, minimal. Uh, they have since gotten more standard, but it, it'd be interesting to see, you know, if they're addressing that issue that you know, if you users invent some term that describes our service and it becomes ubiquitous <laughs> and important to the way we function and market ourselves, then then we own that. Um, I don't know exactly how you'd phrase that, but I don't, I don't think that would work because that would mm-hmm. be a trademark assignment or a trademark license, and there can't be any such license under trademark law without and also assigning the goodwill that's associated with that mark. And how can the user base really have that goodwill in the first place if that goodwill huh. isn't also assigned? It's a naked license and it's uh, in, unenforceable. For Denise, let me let me mention something here too. The the um, one problem with the uh, the consumer confusion analysis is that since 1995, if I recall, um, we had the anti-dilution right added to trademark law, which has really nothing to do with consumer protection or consumer confusion. So even if there's no consumer confusion shown or even possible, uh, Twitter could argue that someone else's use of tweet tarnishes their trademark in – in tweet. Um, although if I recall in this case, I think that someone else has applied for it and Twitter is battling them. So they've probably been advised by their attorneys, you have to protect this mark. Otherwise, you, you might not be able to keep using it by some competitor or trademark troll, I guess you want to call them now. Right. Uh-huh. We, we are definitely in need of having our friend Marty Schwimmer back on the show to go deep on some of these trademark issues because we've had a lot of them come up lately. Uh, but this one is an interesting and kind of a fun one to think about. Um, also interesting and fun to think about is the fact that Hooters is not real happy with competitive restaurant Twin Peaks. Stefan, this is from your site. Why don't you bring us up to speed? Well, yeah, I think it's a tr- this is a trade secret case now. So we've covered mm-hmm. uh, now all four types of – the main four types of IP. Um, I think an executive from – well, there's a competing restaurant chain called Twin Peaks, which competes with Hooters. They both have scantily clad waitresses, et cetera. Um, and I think some of the executives of Hooters left to join Twin Peaks, and one of the allegations is a fairly legitimate type of trademark trade secret claim that you know they stole – some procedural documents about how to run the company, something like this. But I think other elements of it appear to be um, uh, trademark-oriented or, I don't know, copyright-looking feel that... Uh, oh, God, no, you didn't pun. just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Inadvertent. Uh, uh, so this is another example of, of uh, companies trying to compete by using you know the state's legal system instead of just competing by providing a better um, service. Right. Um, so uh, look and feel, restaurant, there's all kinds of good in this post of yours here. Um, Evan, uh, do, you, do you think that, uh, I mean, it's, it seems like a pretty standard trade secret case aside from all the window dressing that you've got, you know, some executives bringing uh, some supposedly specialized knowledge of, of business function and techniques to a competitor. Uh, any further gloss you can add to this? Um, other than things appear to be stacked against them, so they really need to double up on their defense. Um, we see this in other other industries as well. You know, HPs involved in litigation like this all the time. You know, it, when executives leave one company and go to another, I mean, trade secret litigation is no 
uh, stranger to the to the court system, and it happens, you know, quite a bit at those at those high levels. You know, there's this, and it's and it's kind of muddied by this doctrine of inevitable disclosure. You know, there will be trade secret misappropriation because um, you know the, the the job that the guy will be doing at the next job is the same as what it was uh, before uh, there. So you know. Just like with so many Apple stories and Facebook stories and Sarah Palin stories, this is all just because of the the, the context in which it's arising. You know that it's worthy of some some good attention here, and it's uh, it's nice to to draw that attention in in such a uh, provocative way. <laughs> okay, I'll go with that. Bill, any thoughts on Twin Peaks versus Hooters? Hooters versus Twin Peaks? No, I, I don't. I don't think I have really much to add. They re- picking up on a point that Evan just made. The dis- these kinds of disputes, the way they play out, they're often really, really local. You know, they're 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 considerations around it that there's so much uh, uh, fudge factor in the in the in the argument and then and how they're applied. One thing I notice up here locally in Seattle is they tend to the TROs and things like that based on these kind of misappropriation or inevitable disclosure, trade secret or violation of non-compete, they, they tend to be decided on kind of equitable basis. This is just sort of anecdotal. It's just something I've observed over the years. If, if, uh, if a single person is leaving, the tendency of the judge is going to be to not you know, restrict that person's ability to move from company to company. If four or five or six people just so happen to move or a whole department happens to move over the course of two or three months, the, uh, the 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 offended company is going to probably have more of a shot. So th- there's something kind of fungible about these about these doctrines in in application. Maybe it's um, maybe it's uh, just the way the common law the common law works. But the, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of room room to you you can't predict how these things are going to go uh, in a given situation unless you know the facts on the ground. I think. Oh, goodness. And Reverb Mike has thrown another wrench into this whole conundrum of the TV show Twin Peaks and whether they're going to come in and come after these guys next. Again, I think they're in a completely different realm, except for, you know, I'm sure there were attractive women involved there, too. Uh, But nobody was serving chicken wings, as far as I can recall. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's the best part of it. Yes, exactly. the, The chicken wings at Hooters are like the articles in Playboy. (laughs) <laughs> yep you got it got to have your wings well we'll have to see if hooters can rack up a win oh goodness gracious we better put a stop to this and and i know of no <laughs> no uh better way of throwing water on this kind of uh bad pun fire than by bringing up acta which i i kind of thought um stefan had had died away into some sort of uh uh, you know, we've amended it in its harmless kind of limbo. Um, do you do you want to bring us up to speed what's going on there and uh, whether we should start paying attention to ACTA again? Yeah, what's interesting about ACTA is um, it was done as a trade agreement, like a uh, in- instead of a treaty, which normally intellectual property agreements are done as treaties, which are negotiated out in the open. And then they have to be ratified by the Senate, of course, um, and uh, imp- implementing legislation would have to be adopted by the by the Congress. Um, this was done as a trade agreement, which are normally done in secret. And I think uh, Professor Michael Geist, uh, you know, 
acting like the legal WikiLeaks uh, exposed mm-hmm. it when he was had the documents leaked to him a couple of years ago. And so it's been under scrutiny since then. My understanding is the troublesome provisions of it, which basically would apply like a DMCA, uh, digital millennium copyright, uh, U.S. style type um, uh, pr- protection around the world to prohibit counterfeiting and copyright uh, infringement, things like this, um, had been watered down somewhat. So it's not as harmful as it once was. Um, but then Obama and three or four, maybe five or six other nations just signed it as uh, under executive capacity a couple of uh, weeks ago. Um, so I think there's going to be a legal question raised about whether it's actually the law in the U.S. Uh, because it hasn't been approved by the Senate or whether it's just uh, an international obligation of the U.S. But or even whether it's even that, um, as I mentioned in some emails to you um, and some blog posts I'm, I'm working on about it, this calls to mind the, the, the debate in the late – in the 50s about the Bricker Amendment, right, which was based upon the concern that uh, treaties or even executive agreements entered into by the president could supersede the constitution and could be used to have the – say the US enter into a UN-type agreement or something else that would override the Bill of Rights even because the language in the constitution that says that you know it puts treaties up on a par with the supreme law of the land. Uh, and that amendment was defeated uh, by one vote, uh, although a subsequent uh, case uh, said that uh, the Bill of Rights can't be superseded by treaties. But it's still a concern if the president can, just by his own authority, um, execute an agreement, especially because in this current environment where there's a lot of skepticism about patent abuse and copyright abuse, I'm not so sure that the Congress would have approved this law um, uh, if they had had to ratify the act of themselves. Right. They were certainly getting a lot of heat about it from folks who learned of it through Professor Geist. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, I did have one other question about ACTA. It's kind of fled my brain. So I've got one if, go uh, ahead. if I can fill in the space here. And Stefan, I, how would it work out that the, the legality of uh, ACTA, in as much as it was signed by the president, how would that actually come to be a dispute? Because wouldn't it require Congress to actually pass some laws that would then be enforced that people would have to sue over? What, right. what's, a, what's, a, what's a possible you know, procedural uh, pathway for this to, to get challenged? Well, I, I, as far as I can tell, most of the provisions of ACTA are already part of U.S. law. So we're, we're basically trying to extend our more draconian provisions to the rest of the world. Um, so I'm not sure if we are actually not already in compliance with most of ACTA in the U.S. already. But my understanding is, uh, yeah, if you have a valid international obligation of the state – uh, under international law, usually by treaty, but sometimes by means of an executive agreement, then if you don't uh, enact uh, local implementing legislation, then you're just in violation of international law. And so there's no individual that's that's uh, whose rights are violated who could who could dispute it. I think you'd have to have a an interstate suit maybe before the UN or or uh, something like that uh, before the UN's World Court. Uh, so probably nothing would happen. Realistically, in the U.S., if we don't uh, enact implementing legislation, it could have some policy decisions on the margins. But I don't think it's going to be a big effect in the U.S. as far as I understand it. In other countries, that might not be the case because their local law may have self-enforcing provisions where if they sign the agreement according to their law, then it's automatically enforcing. I'm not really sure how Japan or the other signatories' laws um, 
uh, would govern that. Yeah, I wonder if we have ruled out the use of military force against Canada. I've always been intrigued by that. So well, you know, in the uh, in the in I'm the sixties sure and too. in the fifties and sixties and forties and in that period of time, the U.S. did maintain the right to use military force to protect the property rights of American um, citizens in other countries, in particular with the um, you know the Arab oil embargoes and all the Arab oil seizures. Um, so the Western nations have always maintained theoretically that they do have the right to use military force to enforce property rights that are being violated in other countries, and presumably that could include uh, intellectual property if it's a property right. Yes, wow. and Canada. And Canada. We, we, tried to invade, we tried to invade before. I think we could get it done this time if we tried. We, we did it in 1999 with the South Park movie, so I tried to work out another, <laughs> another South Park reference there. Blame Canada. Um, Beatmaster clearly has not been paying attention enough to the folks in Hollywood um, and the folks who lobbied for uh, ACTA to get enacted because he wonders whether treaties aren't generally reserved for wars. And of course, as we all know, copyright and intellectual property violations are nothing if not a war. Uh, but I certainly hope you're wrong, Stefan, that um, we don't see uh, an argument made theoretically or otherwise that military force could get behind such a thing. Uh, you, Billy, you know, then, what, what, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say uh, one problem with these treaties that is often overlooked is uh, you'll hear calls for pa copyright reform. Like we'll say that we need to go from an opt out, I'm sorry, an opt out system to an opt in system, or we need to reduce the term. Uh, but we're a member of WIPO, right? And um, mm -hmm. uh, we have international obligations that would actually prohibit us from modifying copyright laws too, dr too drastically now, even if Congress were behind it. So once you enter into these international obligations, it could you know, internet under international law prohibit needed reform of the law at a later time. Right. Bill, you've been kind of quiet through all this, uh, just uh, taking it all in. Any thoughts? Yeah, I do. I, the, the, this, what, what Stephen has been talking about, you know, at a, uh, maybe is kind of this overarching extra constitutional, uh, you know, pr approach to the issues. I've been tracking uh, kind of down at a domestic level, Senator Leahy's uh, Protective Protect IP Act, and also read with interest the the private agreement, the memorandum agreement between uh, uh, the Motion Picture, the MPAA, and and the RIAA, and Comcast, and some of the other big ISPs, which which the White House wasn't a party to, but they in, they endorsed on their blog the the day it was announced or the week it was announced. I think at the at the legislative level and at the administrative level, there is a um, uh, a kind of a sanctioning of corporate vigilantism in protecting IP. The Leahy bill, for instance, and I may be the only one reading it this way. I think an earlier draft had created this safe harbor concept, so that you know the Justice Department was supposed to get together this blacklist of websites that were infringing that were you know, not good. And, and there was a process set up where the Justice Department could go to a court and try to get these, uh, these, these sites uh, uh, shut down and have the, you know, the, 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 the strip the, the owners of their access to their own domain names if they were infringing. And, and part of the law as it was first drafted said that uh, 
uh, financial transaction providers, people that facilitate financial transactions, uh, could rely on, um, you know, an order or subpoena if they, in good faith, com- uh, cooperated with or complied with the instructions of the Justice Department in dealing with these people on the bad list. That they would, they would have this safe harbor. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be liable to the people that would have been deprived of their property or their their IP or their domain names uh, for for uh, civil infringement. And in subsequent drafts of the bill. You know, and I know it's not a, it's, it hasn't been passed, and legislation's a messy thing, and maybe it's an oversight, but the current form of it, the last one I looked at, that, that link between the safe harbor and there needing to be some action was removed, so that it now reads that if, a, if somebody that facilitates financial transactions makes a good faith determination that someone's infringing and wants to cut off services, they you know they they can do that in the um, in the uh, private agreement among the uh, 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 ISPs and the um, and the uh, movie and radio associations. There's a system for that says that uh, if the MPAA and the RIAA put a a user on a blacklist, that the ISP is going to agree to uh, degrade service. And there's nothing about the uh, uh, there's a there's a system of escalation. They did a press release about how first you get a you get a warning, and second you get educational materials. But the third or fourth step is is um, uh, that the ISP is supposed to start degrading the uh, the the quality of the person's bandwidth before shutting them off altogether. So I don't they know. They just it's, step it's, on it a bit, then you can just ratchet it back, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you the I'll send you the uh, the, the I'll send you the link. Yeah. The idea is to, is to to slow your bandwidth to a to a crawl, and I guess that'll stop you from doing illegal downloads or being a copyright infringer. But it's all extrajudicial. Um, yeah. you know, the, what's, what's in, and that's, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of strange. It's like, it's like the privatizing or the, or the corporatizing of, 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 uh, of legal process. Right. Something well, that's we, been, that's we been, as lawyers should be concerned about. Yeah. The concern about ACTA from the get go is exactly that. Um, Stefan, correct me if I'm wrong. Did we talk about 3d printing with you the last time you were on the show? I know you did the great white paper on it. Uh, I cannot remember if we I know we, about it we last cover time. so much with you when you're on, <laughs> but um, I I, uh, I wanted to bring it up again because uh, just as 3D printing is starting to get really interesting and perhaps feasible in a concrete and widespread way, it appears that intellectual property is is riding in to complicate things. Do you want to tell us what's going on there? Oh yeah, uh, there's lots of issues that are going to start arising because of 3D printing to. Um, uh, there's regulatory issues. I think there was a case where uh, plans were distributed on how to assemble with a 3D printer uh, like an essential component of a – like an AK-47 type submachine gun or something. Like the rest of the parts you can buy legally, but there's a one part that the government heavily regulates, and you can actually fabricate it out of plastic and it, it's a magazine or some part. Um, so when people can start manufacturing objects, then a lot of the laws that um, – now work because they're assuming the physical, you know, the type of production process we have now are going to be easily evaded. And of course, the same thing is true with um, copyrighted or patented or even trademarked um, objects. Um, 
I mean, you know, imagine your your kid loses one of his Lego pieces, and you can buy a whole replacement set or the replacement piece for seventeen dollars or whatever, uh, or you could just print it. And you know, he might have one great piece as part of his set, but it, it would it would save you the hassle of having to replace the whole set. But it of would course, save Lego the hassle too. Just as an aside, you know, they will actually do that. I have gone through this process. We have yes, lost the will. critical piece, and yes. Lego, will, if you if you uh, kindly write to them and and explain your sad story, will send you the new piece. And they did in our case without even charging us, which was so. Oh nice. well, I've done it a few times, and I had to pay yeah. you know three fifty for a little piece that cost them two cents to make, but uh, it was still cheaper <laughs> than the whole set. But uh, but you could obviate the whole process by printing it yourself. And of course, things like this are going to become more and more common just as you know uh, the 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 motion picture association and the book publishers are suing uh, people who would want to print out cds or dvds or books or whatever um, i think that this is going to rise to a, a higher level and there's already some rumbling of some threats uh, uh, but the only way to stop it would be to actually outlaw information because if you have a device in your own home it's basically undetectable what you do with it so if you download the plans from the internet of how to make a certain object, then you're going to have to make that illegal. And to get to make that illegal, you're going to have to have the government to have intrusive search and detection powers, monitor what you're downloading over the internet, just like they're trying to do with the help of the corporations in the case of uh, movie and book piracy and things like this. My head is spinning. We may have to get Beyonce on this. <laughs> Evan, what do you think? Um, yeah. To me, there's the there's this fundamental um, shift in thinking about what it means to infringe, because we have to look at what actually happens in 3D printing. It's you know making a copy, but where is the act of infringement? Where does liability attach along the pathway of getting the information to the end user so that he or she can render this thing in three dimensions and I'm, I suspect that uh, from an analytical standpoint, one would argue that the infringement would happen the moment that the plan is actually downloaded. And that you would not have to wait for the object to actually be printed for the uh, infringement to take place. And we can get that by analogy from just plain old software uh, license or you know, software copyright infringement or even music uh, infringement like what uh, Stefan was talking about, the RIAA and all of those uh, massive efforts against piracy by virtue of copying the information to the, uh, to, you know, downloading it off of the internet and putting it on a local copy. It's, it, it's easier to think about it in terms of software. Say I'm going to download an application and it's infringing, uh, it's an infringing copy. Well, I have infringed just by copying that onto my machine without actually having loaded it into RAM and executing it. The act of infringement happens sooner. So even though it's a bit problematic because we have this uh, different aspect of rendering it in three dimensions, I think that the question of infringement and the liability can easily attach under frameworks of analysis that we already have long before that situation, setting aside all of these larger public policy issues as to whether or not it's a good or a bad thing to permit someone to th uh, print with a 3D printer uh, the m missing piece for an AK-47. That's a completely different issue that I don't know how to an analyze at all. Well, everyone always mm. thinks of the guns with 3D printing. In IRC, RP Hunt, deadpans, 
I assume that money is not copyrightable. (laughs) (laughs) No, but forging it is really, forging it gets people's attention, doesn't it? Right. Absolutely. Uh, Bill, any 3D printing thoughts? Yeah, I read a, I read a, uh, a science, it's, I don't know what to call it. It's kind of a science fiction book. It's a book set in the near future by a guy named Charles Strauss. Uh, it's called Rule 34. I want to recommend it to, to everybody. I think, I think it's set in 2024, and it's kind of a crime mystery. It's about a, um, a woman who's uh, head of a division of the, of the Internet police, and, all, and she follows what people are doing on the Internet all the time. And they're looking for, uh, in large part, uh, crimes involving illegal downloading of information for fabricators that's the term they use in the book people that are building guns and the way they the way they police it on the ground is to outlaw the fluids or substances try to tightly control some of the uh, the materials that are used in weapons grade 3d printing um but the but the it part of the fun of it is this this the book is He's using, um, you know, brand names and products that we can identify with because it's not that far off in the future. But he's imagining just, I guess, kind of just taking what is available now to some sort of extreme where it's really, really uh, pervasive in society. Fun book. All right. So, uh, Bill, you you um, found for us some bills that are still in are early in the house uh, that have to do with, for one thing, um, crowdfunding. Uh, it's some alterations to the SEC laws that look pretty interesting, and you call them kind of breathtaking. Can you uh, tell us what we are looking at here? Yeah, um, in the in the startup funding space. You know, most startup companies, emerging companies, when they're raising private financing, they they rely on a regulation. Most of them rely. Most of my clients and people that that are in this space rely on Rule 506 under Regulation D, and and that provides uh, the issuer with a federal exemption, exempt uh, exempts you from state securities regulation, and uh, it exempts you from the federal registration requirements, of course. Even though Rule 506 permits you to have some non-accredited, up to 35 non-accredited investors in the offering in practice, people don't use that because that brings with it certain information requirements. So, you know, long story short, Rule 506 under Regulation D, uh, where you're where an issuer is selling stock and a private offering to all to investors who meet the accredited investor status. <laughs> That's been kind of how my whole career, that's been how startup companies raise money from seed financing through rounds A, B, C, whatever, you know, until there's an IPO. And there have been a number of pressure points on the the structure of of Regulation D. Um, We saw it in in the Dodd-Frank bill where initially uh, Senator Dodd wanted to increase the accredited investor uh, standards what it took to be an accredited investor and studies showed that that would eliminate about two thirds of, of active angel investors by, by, by taking the standard way too high. So that was fought back in something called the angel investor amendment last year. That, that, that was a, that was a, a, from a startup company ecosystem point of view, that was a, a good development. There still are, in some ways, Rule 506 is antiquated. One example is the ban on general solicitation. And the way the rule is written, it says, you know, an offering 
that is relying on this exemption can't use uh, radio, TV, advertisements, public meetings that are advertised, broadcasts, um, and the language of the of the of that regulation is pretty 20th century. And it and people in the securities bar like myself, you know, we all sort of acknowledge it's kind of it's kind of observed in the breach because with with Twitter and social media and chat rooms and then angel groups that have meetings that are that are that are tweeted about and that are you know there's a lot of chatter on the web about them. You know, it's arguable that a lot of people are not following the general solicitation rule. That's been that's been something that a lot of people in the bar have thought. You know, there should be a reform. Uh, so about. the the quiet period is is now full of din and chatter. Is what you're telling me? One of the legislation. Yeah. Well, this is this isn't this isn't. Uh, it doesn't have to do with IPOs or companies that are going public. It just mm-hmm. has to do with. With uh, whether you're, it's the I guess from an SEC perspective, you might say, is one of the indicia of a truly private offering that is not a public offering. Mm. It's a private transaction, so the offering doesn't need to be registered with the SEC. Uh, among the indicia are in raising the money, you're just dealing with people you know that you have a prior business relationship with, and you're not out there advertising. Well, all right, so uh, so that's know, how we get to crowdfunding, people you don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 related. It's a, it, there's a separate bill for for eliminating general solicitation that would open the field that make angel list a bit more comfortable about what they're doing. I think because they've always been right on that edge. The crowdfunding is a kind of a populist concept that why should it just be a, a rich person's game? Why why do you have to be a, a, a millionaire or have a high income in order to invest in startup companies? So the crowdfunding concept, and that's been pushed by, by phenomena like Kickstarter, you know, is the cost of, of starting uh, particularly IT or software or internet oriented companies has gone down because the resources are more available uh, and companies can you know make a go of something by raising a few hundred thousand dollars instead of a few million the uh, the idea has been why can't we just kind of pass the head get small donations from people and why can't that be okay the SEC has toyed with the idea the uh, the, the commissioner said earlier this year that that the SEC would look at it but the but House Republicans have just kind of bypassed her with a bill that's that's breathtaking in the sense that it, it creates this new exemption that's beyond, I think, what even initial proponents of crowdfunding had requested, saying that, that companies can raise up to $5 million as long as they don't take more than $10,000 per person. And that investment doesn't represent more than than ten percent of that person's net worth, so it's a it's kind of a small invest it's kind of a small investor rights act, you might say. Yeah. That 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 uh, that the that the government uh, shouldn't um, shouldn't uh, stand in the way of normal people or 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 <coughs> non rich people investing in in startup companies, and entrepreneurs shouldn't have impediments to not being able to take money from willing investors to get to get stuff going. So, right. so I guess we should back up for a second and just tell people who are not terribly familiar with the securities laws that we have, the SEC has these protections in place for uh, the common man and woman, you and I and everyone else um, who aren't big, deep-pocketed institutions or very wealthy individuals um, that 
the SEC thinks that that we need to be um, taken care of and that we don't, you know, give our money away in fraudulent schemes to people who are just out there trying to take it and not trying to establish a legitimate company. You know, they're just, you know, taking the money and run. Uh, what was the great movie about um, uh, the play that was the failure? Where they oh, took all the oh, that was the, uh, the producers, yeah, the producers, yes. So it's really the 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 protection against getting sucked into the producers, <laughs> and so yeah. uh, it sounds like this um, this law is is trying to back off that a bit. But it also sounds like it has a long way to go. Um, Stefan, what do you think about this? Um, let, let me ask Bill one clarifying thing. Did you say that it would also raise the number? Uh, from 500 to some higher number or was that what you just as- described it's a it's a suite of different bills there are maybe five or six of them and that's a discrete bill and that's something that the this the i think the secondary trading the the private secondary markets in california are, are trying to get across because and and companies like facebook that 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 kind of back into becoming public companies because they have so many shareholders right uh, so that's going to that's going to raise the the number of shareholder threshold from 500 to 1000 that's the proposal yeah that, my understanding is that, that was around 300 a couple years ago or it was a lower number about 4 or 5 years ago i think they raised it a few years ago it's going to go to a thousand. Okay. And what's what's more, I I it, it, there are amendments going back and forth, but I believe I believe they're going to not include in the count employees or former employees of the company who presumably become shareholders by virtue of exercising uh, stock right. options. I believe that particular bill probably has legs. I believe that got unanimous support from both. From both parties, some of uh-huh. the uh, some of the uh, ones that have more um, direct investor protection implications are probably going to be more partisan. Uh, they sound generally positive to me. I th- I think what's happened is um, uh, you'll have a, a private startup company like I'm a general counsel for one of these companies, and you know they'll go through a couple of rounds of financing and they'll acquire a number of investors and because of the economic downturn some of these companies are not going public yet so they are going through further and further rounds of in de- uh, of a uh, of fundraising and every time they do this they may acquire more shareholders uh, and you do have yeah. to count the, the employees who have stock options is my understanding so the 300 number was raised to 500 a few years ago, and but even the 500 number is probably being approached by a growing number of companies, partly because of the downturn. Um, so I think that exempt, excluding employees from the definition and raising it to a 1,000 would be good. As would as would the uh, uh, the angel investor rule that you mentioned. Um, although that could cause some distortions in how you raise money if no one can give more than 10,000 within a certain segment of your investors. But uh, they sound generally positive to me. Yep. Yeah, and in the 500 shareholder rule, people that the the, the, uh, the crowdfunding bill as written today says that people that become investors under the crowdfunding exemption don't get counted in the right. in the in the thousand shareholder limit. I agree with your analysis. I think another factor in in it too is the growth of these secondary markets. That's also a function of the the IPO market being weak and and it, it, it taking longer to, to to monetize with an investment. And the a lot of the hot social media and other startup companies, you know, do a very 
the founders get substantial liquidity without having a, a, a exit event. And sometimes early investors cash out entirely through the through these secondary markets. And that kind of amplifies things as, as, as founders and insiders and early investors sell maybe not their entire uh, equity in the company, but, but portions of it. So the, the, initial, the initial shareholdings kind of get parceled out as the value of the company goes up. People want to take some money off the table, but not all their upside off the table. Bill, you mentioned this law was was partially in response to things like Kickstarter. Is Kickstarter functioning in some loophole in existing law at the moment? How does, Kickstarter. How is it? Sorry, go yeah. ahead. No, no, yeah, no. Great, great question. Kickstarter's terms of service are very interesting because they <coughs> they um, um, are aware that under the, the, the Howey test, a, a uh, promise of financial return on the money you contribute to a, somebody's project or idea would make that contribution a security, wh- whatever you would call it. If there was going to be some return on the, inv- on, on, on the money given, that would make it a security and they'd be, they'd be afoul of SEC rules. So there are terms of service that make it very clear you may not offer any kind of financial return or financial incentive. You have to give instead uh, a copy of the prototype or a T-shirt or some other fun incentive. It reminds me almost of like, you know, the, the, the gift you get from public radio when you, when you pledge. You know, you get, you get something to incentivize you to do it, but you, you can't get a security. Uh, if the crowdfunding bill something like it were to pass that would make it okay on kickstarter to say among the things you can give away is uh you know a share in the ownership of the company right well this is a lead in then to one of our resources of the week uh because there is an opportunity to comment on this proposed legislation as it is wending its way through the house uh bill where where should people go and and what should they do when they get there uh, this is a, a um, and I'm not being partisan about this. It's just I just want people to be aware if they go to the to the to the site. It's the it's the House Financial Services Committee. It's the official government website of the House Financial Services Committee. And what you'll see is a um, a link to the um, it's HTTP. Uh, oh, that's okay. We, we'll put it in. We'll put it in the discussion oh. points for the show at delicious.com slash thisweekinlaw slash one three three. It's already there, actually, and we're showing it on the screen now. Okay, yeah, it's it's it be, it's not hard to read these bills, uh, unlike so many of the others. And the like in the IP spaces we've been talking about, most of these bills are just a page or two long. And and they've already been passed by a subcommittee, and they'll be up taken by the, which is why I'm taking them seriously because they have some traction. Uh, uh, one or two of them got bipartisan support, and some of them are making it through just on 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 Republican votes. But I was I was struck that that you know there's so much talk about uh, startup America and and you know a startup friendly entrepreneur friendly agenda. It just struck me as odd that. That there are no comments. That could be that there are no comments because whoever's on the other side of this comment <laughs> form is not approving them and publishing them. So I, I I don't know, but I would think this would be an opportunity to read the bill and ask questions about it or put put your put people put their two cents in about it. 
Yeah. And I think we have a lot of listeners who are in the startup space and would be very interested in what happens here with this pending legislation. So thanks for bringing that. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say we can make bird puns all day, but when he says put their two cents in, nobody picks up on that. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Put their 10,000 in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, at maximum. Um, the other resource I want to highlight for people, because, you know, you really need to know what usufruct means, I think, if you don't already. Um, Stefan's going to take care of you because he has published a new book called A Dictionary of Civil Law Terminology in Louisiana. <laughs> usufruct and naked owners are explained to common lawyers and civilians. And thank goodness for that, Stefan. You've done a real public service here. It was a labor of love. Uh, you better <laughs> tell us what, what those two terms mean so we don't leave people oh, hanging. Oh, usufruct is just the right to use something and the, get the fruits, the civil fruits. Um, it's, it's, um, uh, it's like a life estate in common law. Mm-hmm. It, and it, naked, it what me. was the other naked naked owner was the other that's that's like the uh the uh the remainder man the guy that owns the base of the property that it reverts to upon the death of the usufructuary <laughs> that's right and and so anybody who is interested in in arcane terms of law in the state of louisiana uh can go to quid pro quo or, i'm sorry quid pro law.com and uh look up stefan's book and lay your nice little hands on it. Um, now, somebody who laid their hands on something that he probably shouldn't have uh, is Richmond, Virginia lawyer D. Wayne O'Brien. And our tip of the week is about him uh, because he's a personal injury lawyer and he decided to get involved in some of these uh, mass suits against alleged P2P infringers. And his case went hopefully wrong in front of a federal judge. Uh, and he ultimately got sanctioned for running a shakedown against the anonymous defendants. And I think if you're a personal injury lawyer, there are probably many other w- reasons to criticize the lawyers who bring these kinds of cases. But, you know, jumping into full on IP assault when your background is PI, I think is probably a pretty uh, silly thing to do. Evan, did you uh, have any thoughts on Mr. D. Wayne O'Brien? Yeah, I mean, I've, I certainly don't know him and don't know anything more about him than what I've read in this, in this article. You know, this description, even though it's from Ars Technica and Nate Anderson, you know, he writes some really scathing pieces uh, when it comes to attacking this business model of plaintiff's lawyers filing lawsuits against thousands of unknown anonymous P2P BitTorrent using copyright alleged copyright infringers, you know, he writes some pretty scathing pieces on that. I don't really see what Mr. O'Brien did wrong other than making the fundamental choice at the beginning to take a case like this and to to file the lawsuit. It's not like he did something as terrible as what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with lawyer Evan Stone down in Texas, who was sending subpoenas when the court actually had not granted leave to seek to send these subpoenas. So what we get from this story is that the judge apparently didn't take too kindly to these kinds of suits at a very fundamental level, regardless of the lawyering that Mr. O'Brien did. I'm, I'm saying it this way just because I don't want to criticize Mr. O'Brien's lawyering without seeing anything, any indication that he actually did something wrong here. What this does for us is say that these lawsuits perhaps are 
uh, I'm, I'll just go ahead and say, I'll strike the word perhaps, this judge seemed to think that these lawsuits are, are pretty silly. There we go. All right, so that's our tip for this week. And I think that's our show. I really appreciate you guys being with us today. Uh, it's been a really interesting show. We've covered a lot of ground and uh, a lot of puns, unfortunately, but uh, we hope you'll forgive us for that. We try and cover a lot of ground and fewer puns than this show generally um, on our show every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific time, 1800 UTC. And we hope that you'll join us when we record the show live because we love to have a live audience that joins us in chat at uh, irc.twit.tv. Uh, you can watch the show live at just go to twit.tv. That's where you're going to see it. And if you go to twit.tv twil slash twill, uh, you'll see our whole archive of shows going back quite a long way, almost five years. In fact, we're going to celebrate the fifth anniversary of This Week in Law next week. So we look forward to that too. We hope you'll join us. And in the meantime, I'd like to really thank once again, our excellent panel, Stefan Kinsella. We love having you on the show. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks, Denise. Enjoyed it. It's been a real pleasure. Of course, please do go check out uh, Stefan's writings and uh, doings when he's not joining us here on Twill. He's very active on Google Plus and you can find him at stefankinsella.com. He is NS Kinsella on Twitter. And anything else you'd like to plug or draw people's attention to before we go? Uh, one nice resource I was looking at this morning is the Mises uh, website's wiki. Uh, they have an excellent page. Um, it's wiki.mises.org. They have an excellent page on – it's called Without Intellectual Property, and you can find it from their intellectual property page. But it's got like a summary or a compendium of various ways people are finding uh, to profit uh, that doesn't rely upon intellectual property. So that's a, a nice resource. And that's M-I-S-E-S, -E correct? Yeah, wiki.mises.org. Wonderful. Thanks so much. We hope to have you on again soon. Thank you. And joining us once again was Bill Carlton. Bill, uh, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on your journey to New York. That was really enlightening and all your other insights. You're welcome. You're welcome, Denise. Thanks a lot for having me back. I really enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. And, and for anyone who's been watching the video of the show, I think we've definitively worked out that that is not an open medicine cabinet behind Bill, but actually a poster <laughs> of one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 right. It's a high digital. It's very very high resolution. You walk up to it, you can almost walk into it. We could tell. I th I think that uh, Colin in the studio actually had to make sure we were getting the f reflection on it so that people did not think they were peering right into your medicine cabinet, which we thought the for artist, a while. The artist's name is Isaac Lehman, and he's going to have a show. Uh, retrospective at the tender young age of 20-something at the Fry Art Museum in Seattle in uh, mm. November. Cool. Mm. All right. Well, uh, you, you have the world's greatest online handle. I think it's really, you know, more you, your, your profession is <coughs> ill-chosen because you go around online as WAC6. And I think maybe, you know, you should partner up with Beyonce because it sounds like you should really be <laughs> doing something in the entertainment industry with that one. But uh, Wax6 on Twitter, Wax6.com. Uh, anything else that you want to, that of course is your initials, I take it. Uh, that is my uh, first email address issued by Cornell University to me in 1980. Five, I think maybe it was, or 86. <laughs> so, and I've just wow. copped it. 
There you go. It serves you well. Uh, anything else you want to bring people's attention to before we go? Uh, a blog that's really hot right now that I'm really enjoying a lot is Dave Weiner's blog, uh, scriptingnews.com, I think, or maybe scriptingnews.org. Dave Weiner, the you know the originator of RSS feeds and other things, and he's pulling together a lot of um, uh, this public-private ownership of of IP and trying to make sense of the Occupy Wall Street movement and, and, and all that. I mean, half the issues we talked about today, yeah, he's, he's entertaining from a, from a technology and a policy perspective. So I just recommended that. He's, he's really in, on, in good form right now. Oh, that's so great. Thank you so much for bringing up Dave. He does an excellent job of that and has for, what, the last decade or more of bringing together all kinds of thoughts and perspectives and bits of news. And that's, that's I think, how we're all here because Dave started doing this and we all started doing it in his wake. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that he is still doing a great job of what I've always enjoyed from him. So thanks for that. And yeah. uh, Evan, wonderful to chat with you again this week. Had a great yes. talk. I did too. And I have to admit, I was a little stressed out preparing for this show because, you know, they got some really smart guys on this uh, show. So I had to, had to really do my homework and be up to, uh, you know, to be, to be up for the task. But uh, it was a wonderful time as usually, as usual, really appreciate you having me on and uh, really, uh, really looking forward to, uh, to the next go round. I know. Well, you see, I try and staff us up with really smart people on the panel. So you and I can just kind of lean back and listen and take it all in and enjoy their wonderful perspectives and chime in with puns when we feel the urge. <laughs> right. That kind of just makes it, uh, makes it easier. That's right. But glad, glad I can help you out with that. Yes, absolutely. And, and we really appreciate all of you joining us for uh, This Week in Law. When you tune back in next Thursday, you'll have Windows Weekly with Paul Thrott, and we'll be back at our Friday time slot. Uh, and with that, we will sign off and to ask you to, uh, if you're watching live, stay tuned for iPad Today coming up in about half an hour. Thanks, everyone. Take care.